This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Patrick Mullins. Patrick is the author of a new book, Tiberius with a Telephone, The Life and Stories of William McMahon. McMahon is widely regarded as one of Australia's worst performing Prime Ministers. But was this actually the case? And has history remembered him accurately? Patrick and I discuss his long career in politics and a more nuanced picture of his life and career. Patrick is the inaugural Donald Horn Fellow at the Centre for Creative and Cultural Research. Uh, you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. Now, as I said, I'm speaking with Patrick Mullins, the same Mullins at least same spelling as me. And uh, that's not why I chose to speak with Patrick. I'm very excited to chat with him because he's written a fantastic book called Tiberius with a Telephone, The Life and Stories of William McMahon. And it's out through Scribe Publications. And as I said, I'm going to uh, try Skype. So bear with us. If we have any issues, we're going to head to a backup option. But uh, I'll just see if we have Patrick on the line. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Amy. How are you going there? Hi there. I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Very well, very well. Let's hope well, the Skype connection holds up. I think it's yes, dropping a little bit in and out. But. A teeny bit. We'll see how we go and uh, I can always call you. Um, so thank you for joining me. And uh, yes, I don't think we're related, but I just thought it was very funny. <laughs> but you've written a fantastic... If only we could be. If only we could be. I know. It would have been. What a coincidence. Um, but I'm sure there were quite a few Mullinses in the... Uh, Island and Isle of Man, which is at least where my <laughs> relatives are from. It's probably the Smith of Ireland, and I don't know. <laughs> probably. I yeah. have no idea myself. Yeah. The unique here, so that's all that matters. Um, so, Patrick, you've written, well, it's a big book, um, and obviously there's a huge amount of research in here, uh, and I'm really quite astounded at how you've managed to condense it and uh, bring it into a format that has a, a strong narrative, a strong analysis. Um, it's a historically rigorous book, uh, but I just was reading the acknowledgements at the end, and I found that interesting, so I thought I'd start out with that point. Um, you say this book was written without the cooperation of the McMahon family and without access to McMahon's papers, which are held at the National Library of Australia. So in place of that, you've actually gone to a huge amount of effort to interview people who knew William McMahon, one of our Prime Ministers, and also uh, seek out other archives and libraries uh, in Australia and the UK. And obviously, there's a whole range of other sources of which you can draw on. So that must have been quite a significant feat, really, to not have access to his private papers, which are held at the National Library, and I'm guessing must have restrictions placed upon them. Yeah, they do. Um, McMahon donated his papers, um, first of all, when he left the Prime Ministership in the 1970s, uh, and then he took them back again in order to work on his autobiography. When he died without that autobiography published, they were donated back to the National Library um, under a very, very strict embargo. Um, I sought cooperation from the McMahon family, but they declined um, so I didn't have access to those papers. I got around that, though, by, first of all, drawing on the huge amount of cabinet papers, um, the huge amount of cabinet records that are held in the National Archives, and also by talking with one of McMahon's ghostwriters, um, a journalist named David Bowman, who not only retained a diary of his time working with McMahon, 
but also had copies of papers and some of McMahon's private reflections on events. And I was able to draw on those in the book. Well, I don't, it, it comes across that you don't lack sources. So, um, yeah, it seems like there was plenty <laughs> there. Yes, look, there's there's a lot of material there. Um, the you know, I mean, the cabinet documents, for example, are voluminous. Um, there's you know, McMahon was a minister for twenty years, so there's twenty years worth of cabinet stuff to get through. Um, there's, there's also a great range of material from the National Library, um, which I supplemented with my own interviews and correspondence with people. Uh, where they were alive still. Yes, that's a really good point, is that, um, you know, some of these people are no longer with us. Uh, and it's interesting you say that uh, he was a minister for quite a long time and, well, he was. He was a minister, um, or he had a portfolio initially um, which covered the Navy and the Army and then he became Minister for Primary Industry uh, in 1956, Minister for Labor and National Service in '58, Treasurer in 1966 and Minister for External Affairs in 1969. Uh, That's a pretty decent effort, especially because he wasn't necessarily that highly regarded by the majority of his colleagues, or at least that's how it comes across, is that there are a number of people who kept him in the tent, who appointed him to cabinet roles, but didn't necessarily trust William McMahon or um, they also, I guess queried his intentions sometimes he would often go to great lengths to achieve certain goals yeah one of the things i find quite interesting about mcmahon is that he managed to stay in the ministry for so long and continue to be promoted so often uh in spite of this derision and dislike from his colleagues um you're absolutely right to say that they distrusted him they scorned him um arthur fadden used to call him billy the flea robert menzies (laughs) called him that little bastard um, you know, that they absolutely hated his guts. Uh, and the way McMahon managed to work his way through um, certainly inspired no liking whatsoever. Um, but what there always was right throughout his career was an acknowledgement of McMahon's industry, his ability to work, um, and his doggedness, his persistence. Um, one of the things that we might forget when we think about McMahon as Prime Minister Um, We think maybe he's incompetent and kind of a bit silly and blowing in the wind. Um, But as a minister, he actually had a very good record of getting through cabinet submissions, of arguing his positions in spite of the opposition of his colleagues, Um, which and that I think really kind of girded his success. It was the foundations for his relentless rise through the ministry. Yes. And in some of those roles, he um, rubbed people up the wrong way to um, understate things a little. <laughs> and, Put it lightly. Uh, yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> and it certainly, you know, is quite entertaining reading when you're looking at it. But one of those people, which is quite astounding, was um, Henry or Harry Bland, who uh, was part of or head of the Department of Labor and National Service and became the permanent head in 1952 and is quoted by you as basically being constantly called, telephoned by uh, William McMahon about any kind of idea relating to this portfolio. And uh, Bland says that he didn't really seem to understand his this particular portfolio um what was your take on that um look certainly mcmahon was a prodigious user of the telephone uh and bland is absolutely right to recall being telephoned at all hours of the day and having in fact to take evasive maneuvers like saying that he was under the house and couldn't be reached or 
um, you know, that it's four o'clock in the morning and calling McMahon back and waking him up to try and stop these telephone calls. Um, one of the things to say, though, about Bland is he absolutely scorned McMahon, but there is, alongside that scorn, an acknowledgement and an awareness that McMahon did manage to do things. Uh, and he, he was, you know, as, as Minister for Labor and National Service, he actually managed to get quite a bit of stuff done, namely by taking on the, um, the WWF the, on the waterfront. Um, he managed to establish the stevedoring industry authority um, to recruit workers for the waterfront. Uh, and that was taken at some points in spite of scepticism from Bland about whether or not it would work. Um, one of McMahon's staffers told me that when Bland heard of McMahon's plan to, to take on the waterfront, he in fact kind of washed his hands of it and said, I'm going, I'm done, and went and hid away in, in the Senate building for a while. <laughs> um, but of course, later on, Bland would, um, would say that this was all his idea uh, and that in fact, um, McMahon had been the one to kind of, had to be kind of kept under wraps, kept on a tight leash in order to make sure it came through. Um, whichever way you look at it, though, there, there is a substance there. Bland kind of had to recognise that McMahon was a bit more substantial than others might have allowed. He wasn't a total lightweight. Yes, well, that's an excellent point. And he gets his doggedness and persistence uh, from, I guess, his childhood that was shaped by a range of factors. And you go through his upbringing or lack of an upbringing, at least by his immediate family. Uh, he seemed to have lacked a certain amount of hands-on nurturing um, by his his parents, his mother and father. Uh, his mother died of, I think it was tuberculosis when he was nine years old and his father died when he was 18. And as you say, he was raised by his aunt and uncle um, and he was on top of that, separated from his siblings and they were all kind of parceled off, as you say, to different parts of the extended family. What uh, do you think has influenced William McMahon, not only his, uh, his, I guess, the nature versus nurture, the nurturing um, of his family, but also then his uh, studying of the law and, and his work or apprenticeship, essentially, as a solicitor? Um, definitely his, his training. I mean, McMahon came to, to politics, one of the you know, best equipped kind of people to be politician. He had, as you say, that study in the law. Uh, he also had study in economics um, while in the law, he had invested in a company started up by Frank Packer uh, and thereby gained an ally who would give him all sorts of influence and power um, in years that followed. But McMahon also, it should be said, um, he was deaf. And this did impact him as well. You know, he was kind of couldn't hear things very well, which stopped him going from becoming a barrister. Uh, and it did influence his conduct in the House, in, in Parliament. You know, it gave him that accent, that voice, that high squeaky voice that people like to imitate. Um, and so... Again, when you look at that and you think about that in consideration of McMahon's ability to get there, um, it definitely kind of nurtured this sense of persistence and need to win, need to become secure. Um, his, that, that kind of tragic upbringing that, that you mentioned um, of, being, of never having a secure family home, of, of parents, his parents dying and, and being sick, uh, his elder brother dying as well, um, those, those gave him a profound insecurity that he needed to constantly kind of assuage by, um, by achieving, by striving, by working. Uh, and it took him a long time to find security, I think.
Yes, and what's really interesting is the fact that he has witnessed a huge portion of Australian political history and been a key player in it. And he was there um, or saw the uh, Liberal Party formed by Robert Menzies and was elected uh, as a member in New South Wales. And, uh, I mean, his pre-selection almost seemed to happen by chance and was uh, (laughs) quite influenced by the women in the area. Yeah, this is, I think, it's a really interesting story. Um, McMahon was, he ran into a friend of his, uh, Jack Cassidy, a leading Sydney QC, who said to him, oh, you know, look, I'm supposed to be speaking out in Western Sydney today as part of my pitch to be the new member for this new seat that's going to be there. Would you go and speak in my stead, though? You know, I've got a case on. And McMahon went out there and he talked about his studies in the law, about his studies in economics, about his travels overseas to see communism in operation firsthand. Um, and when he was finished, this group of this, these women, this women's group that he was speaking to, uh, he, they asked him to wait outside and, and eventually one of them came out and said to him, you know, are you a tyke? Uh, are, you, are you Catholic? That's the question. Um, McMahon obviously is an Irish name, it's County Clare, uh, and his family, his paternal family were Catholic. But because of that insecure upbringing, because of his, the influence of his aunt and uncle, he had converted to the Church of England. And so he was able to say, no, I'm not. And they said, wonderful. We'd like for you to be the new member for Lowe. Uh, and it's worth saying that those women's groups were instrumental uh, in his in his security in, in that seat of low throughout his career. He was always very good with women. He could charm them. He could flatter them. Um, one woman who knew McMahon in this time said to me that he always would kiss the old elderly women on the cheeks, um, and they always used to love it because he was this young, dashing, kind of well-dressed man. But the younger women, McMahon would, you know, not he wouldn't kiss them. He was very wary of entanglements at that time, but he was always very popular with the women's groups. Yes, and, well, the Liberal women were also very uh, influential in the formation of the Liberal Party, particularly the Australian Women's National League. So, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, Absolutely. It's yeah. fascinating to see that and, uh, and also the fact that they're not so influential nowadays uh, or at least not being pre-selected for safe seats just as we saw in McMahon's pre-selection battle. Yeah, I mean, this is a... Uh, I mean, there are a lot of parallels, I think, between today's political situation and back then. Um, when McMahon was pre-selected, uh, a woman named Edith Shortland was kind of aggrieved. She was really outraged that the Liberal Party had failed to take on um, women candidates. They, I think they pre-selected one for the House of Representatives, Nancy Wake, um, who was pre-selected for Doc Evatt's seat. You know, we're never going to win that. Um, and she actually stood as an independent Liberal candidate against McMahon because she was so aggrieved and outraged at this this mistreatment, pretty much, uh, of the female candidates. Um, McMahon didn't have any trouble seeing her off in that, in that election in 1949, but it's a, a salutary kind of example, I think. Yes, definitely. And I'm speaking with Patrick Mullins, and we're discussing his book, Tiberius with a Telephone, and it is the life and stories of William McMahon, one of Australia's prime ministers. He uh, was prime minister between 1971 and 72. Now, you also intersperse this book with excerpts from Bowman, who was, uh, I guess, the unfortunate person who managed or oversaw the creation of um, of a biography that, or autobiography or memoir um, that was never published uh, by 
uh, William McMahon and it was a very, very lengthy draft. Um, and it, I find that really interesting, particularly um, the the interspersals of uh, reflection that Bowman has in questioning of some of the circumstances or events that uh, William McMahon recalls and has in his notes. And often these notes were taken at the time. But uh, Bowman really questions whether all of these facts check out and whether his account of events is actually an accurate account. Uh, and he he says, quote, McMahon really is a third-rate politician and that he could be PM is a damning indictment of the country. He is really a rather nasty bit of work, half-truths, lies, comocan, cheap attacks. What an unpleasant little turd. I mean, that's a very strong <laughs> diary entry, I think it is. So, obviously, it was intended for a, probably a private audience. Yeah. Um, look, the, the diary that Bowman kept at this period working through McMahon, trying to get, get this autobiography right, um, ghostwriting this book that McMahon just couldn't seem to write, um, it, it moved Bowman to such frustration, um, and his diary entries reflect that. McMahon had this inability, I think, to, to reconcile um, the documentary record with his own view of events. You know, he told these stories of him to himself and to other people about himself being so brilliant, about him being always right and wise, uh, constant where his colleagues were unsteady or, or faltered. Um, but, you know, in retirement, when he worked on this book, he couldn't make it work. He couldn't get it right. He had to employ this whole industry of ghostwriters, journalists, academics. Um, they all came and went through McMahon's office between 82 and 88, trying to get this book together and they just couldn't because McMahon couldn't see um, himself properly, couldn't admit faults, couldn't see that this co the stories he had told himself um, were maybe not correct. Um, so, I, I mean, I interspersed these stories in the book because they helped draw attention to, first of all, the way that McMahon um, spun stories and the, the facts that he liked to have. Um, but another way they kind of also help us see how this man was not always this old, befuddled, kind of incompetent-like figure that we know through, um, you know, that we think of as Prime Minister. Um, he was at times quite a young and dashing guy. He was fashionable. He was thought of quite highly at some points. Um, but trying to kind of grapple those two things together, trying to reconcile and tell that story, um, that was something that bedeviled McMahon and it bedeviled Bowman right throughout the time he worked for him. Yes, well, having those inherent contradictions can be difficult to explain. Uh, certainly now looking back, even more difficult, perhaps not having uh, experienced those events firsthand. Um, but one of the other elements around his character that was um, really a source of tension for Robert Menzies, who uh, appointed him, to his cabinet and many still aren't sure why he stayed there as you say but he um Menzies said roughly I think you quote uh you couldn't trust McMahon not to give away budget secrets if it suited him um his relationship with the press or the media seemed to be an interesting one how did William McMahon utilize the media for his own political purposes oh well it it has to be said that McMahon was, in many respects, ahead of his day in the way that he would use the media. Um, he formed a relationship very early on with Alan Reid, who was a journalist for the um, for the Packer Press, for the Bulletin and the Daily Telegraph. Uh, and McMahon would just drip feed material to Reid, um, and and he would get favourable coverage out of this. If if you read, for example, Reid's books, The Power Struggle, 
and the Gorton experiment, you see this in operation. McMahon is presented in this very noble light, and that's entirely because he was giving this information to Reid to write it. Um, but McMahon would leak constantly to any and all journalists. Um, Graham Perkin, the, the editor of The Age, was a cadet journalist in Canberra, and one day he recalled McMahon standing beside him at the urinal, uh, leaking, I suppose, in more ways than one, um, <laughs> And the next day, uh, seeing Menzies ticking off Pent Perkin about this, about this story that he'd run, came across and joined in, joined in to tell him off. Um, you know, the, the kind of effrontery, the hide, the chutzpah of this guy was, was pretty, um, pretty incredible. Um, but he was ahead of his time. He would use the press to background colleagues, to burnish his own image, to make himself seem um, a much more charismatic, a much more principled figure than he might actually have been. Yes, and uh, it is very interesting that that um, that that's how he was represented, and perhaps may have added to his uh, election prospects and standing in the party. How did uh, William McMahon gain the leadership of the Liberal Party? Because uh, John Gorton was the Liberal leader and Prime Minister before him. And uh, it's interesting that he managed to grab it and also in very close circumstances. Yeah, th this is a quite incredible point. Um, Gorton had come to power in 1968 after the death of Harold Holt. Uh, and he had first actually canvassed sacking McMahon, m moving him. He thought very low, very low of him. Um, but he kept McMahon on. Uh, but Gorton's direction, the way, the directions he was taking the Liberal Party, in particular, the kind of nationalism that he emphasised, um, that was in marked contrast to the ideas and the principles of many of the Liberal Party in that time. Um, these are guys who'd come to power trying to push back against Labor's socialist powers. Um, so Gorton had antagonised the party quite a lot in his first term in office, uh, enough to prompt a leadership challenge in 1969 after the election. You know, that's an incredible thing straight away, we have to say. You win an election and straight away you're challenged by your party. That's pretty big. Mm. But in 1971, Gorton seemed to think that the coast was kind of clear. Um, he he was felt quite secure. But he had this big brawl. It started through the press and it kind of grew in importance and significance. And he had a big brawl with Malcolm Fraser over backgrounding, over support, over um, loyalty as well. And Fraser decided to resign as Minister for Defence. Um, he did so knowing full well that his resignation would very likely lead to Gorton's fall and to McMahon's rise. Um, nonetheless, it was a very close-run thing. Um, two of Gorton's backbenchers moved a vote of confidence in Gorton's leadership in the party room, and the vote was tied. And Gorton said, well, that's not a vote of confidence, so I resign, and he stepped down. Uh, and it was then that McMahon leapt at the chance. Um, he stood for the leadership. He won it very easily. But at the same time... Gorton stood for the deputy leadership and became McMahon's deputy. So you, you, you know, it would be analogous today to um, Malcolm Turnbull standing for the deputy leadership immediately after he was deposed. Um, a kind of ridiculous farcical moment mm. uh, and one that was absolutely unexpected. Uh, when it was announced, one journalist said straight out to the press secretary at the time, you're joking. I mean, you're just joking. Um, but McMahon was there. 20 years of work behind him. Um, a couple of months ahead of him to use it to try and see what would happen. Yes, and do you think he was doing some kind of numbers in the background in the event that one day there was a leadership uh, spill? Yes, I, I think McMahon never gave up on the dream of becoming a leader. 
Uh, and certainly, I mean, I report in the book, Malcolm Fraser's suspicions that McMahon was actually the one who initiated the blow-up between Fraser mm. and Gorton. Um, I think McMahon never gave up on it. I think he counted on and was aware of the levels of support for him within the party, uh, but also the levels of antagonism toward Gorton. Uh, and he could use it. He seized on that opportunity, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, it seems very well played, politically well played. Although the outcome, which is he has a, a deputy leader who was his predecessor, doesn't sound like a particularly healthy arrangement. How did that end up? Um, it, it ended in disaster, um, as, it, as it always was going to. Mm. Um, about six months after after he'd become um, deputy leader, Gorton accepted an offer to write some articles, autobiographical articles, for the Australian newspaper. Uh, and in doing so, in writing these articles, he actually reflected on his colleagues. He, he suggested that some of them had leaked. Uh, and so McMahon moved to sack Gorton for doing so. He rang around the backbenches. Um, he made sure he had support within the party, made sure he had support within the bureaucracy for doing this, uh, and then moved to have Gorton sacked. He managed to pull it off. Uh, but this was the occasion where McMahon gained that infamous title, um, the infamous name, which is the title of the book, um, called him Tiberius with the telephone in the house. He pointed out that McMahon had sat on the Isle of Capri, had telephoned all and sundry to make sure he had the, had the numbers behind him to sack Gorton. He'd screwed up his courage, but only when he had the numbers. Mm. You know? um, so, I mean, it ended in absolute disaster. Um, but the, the the antagonism between Gorton and McMahon never went away. Um, for years afterward, Gorton would, you know, couldn't stand to be in the room with McMahon. Um, when there was a suggestion, in fact, that they'd be knighted at the same time, Gorton said, I'm not going to share a ceremony with that little bastard. No way. Um, you know, so the antagonism never went away. Uh, and over the, the remaining months of McMahon's term as Prime Minister, there were always rumours and murmurs that Gorton was preparing for a comeback, that he was mm. going to try and retake the leadership. Um, but it never happened, obviously. Yes, so many echoes of current day that I'm hearing. Uh, and also, in your view, given that you have assessed his Cabinet papers and you've really looked in depth at all of his positions in Cabinet, including as Prime Minister, what do you think uh, we should see as some of his key achievements and perhaps that might uh, contradict or overturn at least some of the negative uh, assumptions or evaluations people have made? I think McMahon's... I mean, the first point I think that McMahon's highlight, the high point of his career, has to be when McMahon was treasurer, where he was pushing for um, pushing back against the protectionist line that had been run by John McEwen. McMahon was a free trader from New South Wales, and he was arguing really quite strongly ahead of his time that Australia should not be protecting Australian industries quite so much. Um, that won him a lot of enmity, um, most acutely when, when Harold Holt drowned and McEwen vetoed him. That's, I think, McMahon's crucial achievement in politics. As Prime Minister, his legacy, though, his achievements are much more mixed. There are some really good things in there. Um, he passed, for example, the Child Care Act, which allowed the Commonwealth to intervene in the childcare industry, transforming it from this quasi-private one to a public one, um, paving the way for its professionalisation, for research, for Commonwealth funding even as well. Uh, McMahon also managed to establish the National Urban and Regional Development Authority um, to, again, provide for Commonwealth involvement in urban and regional affairs. Um, McMahon took Australia into the OECD. Um, McMahon withdrew combat troops from Vietnam. That's, I think, a kind of an important point. He accelerated the withdrawal of Australian troops from Vietnam 
so that when Whitman came to office, he only had about 200 left to withdraw, uh, and they were training troops, so they weren't um, involved in combat operations. Um, McMahon also, you know, he, he did quite a bit of stuff in the sense of he um, he established the polluter pays principle in the, in the environment. He established the first department of the environment, in fact, as well. Um, but at the same time, there were, you know, quite a lot of failures and, and, and problems. Um, McMahon engaged in quite a bit of politicking over tours of the South African sporting teams. This is during the apartheid era. Um, he was kind of running this law and order kind of campaign on that issue. He failed, I think, egregiously um, on Indigenous affairs. He refused to translate a traditional association with the land uh, into law as a basis for land rights claims. That was a really big thing, I think, uh, and it prompted the development uh, of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy outside Parliament House. He also obviously failed on China. That was a big failure. Um, but, you know, he also lost the 1972 election, um, which for many Liberals was enough to damn him forever. Although it was a tough fight, given that he was up against Gough Whitlam in that really famous campaign that uh, got him elected. So uh, can't be too harsh on that one, surely. No, you can't. I mean, look, it, it, it's worth saying that when McMahon came to office, a lot of the reliable planks for the coalition had begun to rot and fall away. Um, communism wasn't really an issue you could campaign on. Vietnam was no longer an issue. State aid was no longer an issue. Um, you know, and, and McMahon was losing vital allies left, right and centre. Um, Sir Frank Packer sold the Daily Telegraph to Rupert Murdoch uh, and Murdoch turned hard against the coalition. He ran right toward Whitlam. And so McMahon was kind of battling on all of these fronts um, and, you know, without the kind of support that other leaders of the coalition had had before him. So in, in that sense, the scale of the loss in 1972 was actually pretty good. McMahon only mm. lost, uh, nine, yeah, it was nine seats that Whitlam had in the end, uh, and about 2,500 votes spread across in, in just the right way across five of those seats would actually have seen the McMahon government hang on by a fingernail, but it would have hung on. Uh, and his reputation today might be very different. Yes. Well, Patrick, you've made a, a, a remarkable achievement, really, with this research and this book. And congratulations uh, on the book, as well as being the inaugural Donald Horn Fellow at the Centre for Creative and Cultural Research, and uh, also winning the 2015 Scribe Nonfiction Prize for Young Writers. It sounds like there'll be much more to come from you, uh, possibly from the archives, and uh, <laughs> I really appreciate uh, your time today. No, thank you for talking with me, Amy. It's great. Thank wonderful, you. wonderful. Oh, good. Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed listening. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.